All right, good morning, church. Let's take a moment to pray together and ask God to help our time once again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's none like you in heaven or on earth. God, we thank you that you have saved us. You sent your son to pour out his blood on our behalf so that all who are yours, all who turn to him, will have eternal life. God, you have called us to yourself and we give you praise. And God, as your people, we call upon your help now. Help us as we open your word to be moved by it. I pray that you would make it effective in our life. I pray that you would make us good hearers this morning. Help us now. Apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. So come build this house, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 8 through 10. And by way of introduction to this text, I want to remind us of who's writing this letter and who he's writing to. This letter is written by Paul, and Paul is in prison. And during first, uh, Paul's first imprisonment, he wrote what are known as the prison epistles. This is, this is Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And even in his imprisonment, Paul was surrounded by several of his oldest and his most valued friends, people whom he called his, his fellow laborers. And you can see this in several letters when Paul begins to list the friends that are with him who also want to include a greeting to the churches that he's writing to. And we know that Paul is able to send brothers to churches so that he can learn about the state of those churches. And it's because of these fellow laborers that Paul was not hindered from sharing the gospel message with others or writing letters to encourage individuals and churches despite being in prison. Now, at the time that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, Paul's either still in prison or he has been imprisoned a second time, depending on how you read church history. And Nero had just burned Rome. And church history tells us that Nero, quote, inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. And these were called Christians by the populace, end quote. And it seems that Paul being in prison, Nero burned Rome, inflicting exquisite tortures on the church. It also seems that Paul had parted ways with or had been abandoned by many of his fellow laborers. And the apostle is now almost entirely alone. In fact, in this letter, he writes and he says, Luke alone is with me. And we read in this letter that not only are all these things happening, but he also expected to die soon. And he didn't know when and he didn't know how. What would you do in Paul's shoes? Well, Paul picks up pen and paper and he starts writing a very personal letter of last words, a farewell address to a young pastor named Timothy. 
who started off with Paul as a disciple and became a faithful co-worker and ultimately a very close friend of Paul. And as you read this, this farewell address, you'll notice that it's steeped in suffering. And some of the themes that Paul explains are how suffering is a standard part of the Christian experience. He explains that the Christian response to suffering is faithful endurance by God's power and that the gospel is the ground for Christian endurance. And Paul's overall aim for Timothy in this letter is that he wants him to be strong through this. Strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That he be courageous, that he press on in the work that God has called him to, and that he embrace suffering and not run away from it. And everything that Paul says in our text this morning is meant to help Timothy to that end. So let's read our passage, and then we'll discuss our passage. Verse 8, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So our basic roadmap this morning is that we're going to look at this imperative to remember Christ Jesus. And then Paul points Timothy to remember his work, his word, and his will. I had to work very hard to make all those start with the W. I'm a good Baptist. I wanted to do that for you. I did also want to give you this encouragement before we begin. This passage is filled with encouragements that will stir your soul. Period. End of story. And if you feel that this morning and you have the urge to say, amen, you're free to do so. It might be an encouragement. So, this passage this morning is relevant for everybody in this room. Uh, the reason that Paul gives Timothy for why he should endure and embrace suffering for the gospel instead of running from it are the same reasons that we should endure and embrace suffering for the gospel. So even if you feel like you have a different personality, you have a different drive, you're, you have a different vocation than Timothy, meaning you're not a pastor, or even if you're a different gender or if you're at a different stage of life, don't think that this message is not for you. It is. Every Christian needs what Paul says here this morning. So Paul begins with an exhortation to remember Jesus Christ. Now it might seem odd at first glance that Paul tells this faithful co-worker in the faith to remember Jesus Christ. It kind of makes you want to ask the question, did Paul think that Timothy was in danger of forgetting Jesus? I mean, just think about who Timothy is. Timothy, according to God's word, we learn that he was acquainted with scriptures from the childhood, from his childhood. He was well spoken of by the church. He was a disciple of Paul. He was a missionary with Paul. He was a gifted pastor. He had a genuine care for the welfare of the church. He was a godly man. He did the work of an evangelist. At some point, 
he was imprisoned, likely for his gospel witness, and it seems that he was present with Paul for seven of Paul's 13 letters that he wrote. So with Timothy's resume, why did Paul think it was necessary to exhort him to remember Jesus? And the answer is because of suffering. Suffering is a reality in the Christian life, and when we suffer, it's easy to fix our thoughts on who or what is causing the suffering. Consider the example, when Jesus came walking to his disciples on water, hear what Peter says in that moment. Matthew 14, 28, it says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. What an astounding moment of faith and trust that was to even request such a thing. Command me to come on the water? Do you remember what happens next, though? Verse 30, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. So in this moment of astounding faith and trust, and just as, just as fast, uh, Peter's focus was taken off of the Lord Jesus, who had called him to himself, and Peter's faith gave way to fear and doubt, and he began to sink. And just like Peter, Timothy has a tendency to forget God, and suffering has a way of intensifying this tendency. And Paul knows this tendency, and the solution that Paul points Timothy to is not the greatest philosophy of the day. The solution that Paul points Timothy to is not a list of self-help tips. It's not self-care remedies. He points Timothy to a person. And that person is Jesus. Paul is not thinking that Timothy was in danger of forgetting Jesus in the sense of falling away, making absolute shipwreck of his faith or abandoning the faith. Rather, this imperative is an imperative to think on Jesus continually. Remember him and keep on remembering him. Paul is saying, Timothy, don't let Jesus be far from your mind. Instead, remember him. Think about Jesus so much that it affects your thought process, the very decisions that you make moment by moment. Remember Jesus Christ. And Paul helps Timothy to remember Jesus Christ by pointing him specifically to Christ's work. And Paul is laying a foundation of remembering with the next two statements that he gives. The first statement is, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. When Paul is trying to bolster Timothy's confidence, which is what he's trying to do. He's trying to pour steel in the foundation of Timothy's life, which is what he's trying to do, so that Timothy, instead of running away from suffering, he embraces suffering. He reminds him that Jesus is alive. This fact that Jesus is alive propelled Paul from his conversion to his death. Paul poured out his life under the banner that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. The fact that Jesus is alive compelled Paul. 
And we too need to consider the power of his resurrection this morning. Jesus' death was a real human death in every sense of the word under divine judgment from God. This judgment from God was not for the punishment of his sins, but for our sins. Isaiah 53 says, He, meaning Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And this piercing and crushing that Jesus experienced was bearing the wrath of God that was owed for our sin. It was God's judgment for our rejection of the king. And as a result of our sin, Jesus really died. His heart really stopped pumping. The blood flowing through his veins really came to a screeching halt. His brain activity completely ceased. All the lights of life were turned off. And now, consider the glorious moment when three days later, through omnipotent power, he turned all of the lights back on. CPR was not administered. No defibrillator was needed. The only thing that was needed was his omnipotent power over the grave. And that was all that was needed because in the greatest display of power in the known universe, Jesus undid death. His heart started beating again. Stagnant blood began flowing through his body. Brain activity kicked back on. He opened his eyes. He sat up in his own tomb and walked out of his own grave. Jesus is alive. There are many things to say about that. We don't have the time to say them all. So I'll give you three. If Jesus is alive, then he has defeated death. Acts 2.24 says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. He, he let loose the very sting that death had about it. God loosed that. We can't do that. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. John 10.18, talking about his own life, Jesus says, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And he did just that. He took it up again. Jesus' death was not the close of his career. Using almighty authority, he still pressed Onward, The grave once looked like an iron gate of death, but Jesus ripped it completely off its hinges. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then our resurrection from the dead is certain. John 11, Jesus speaking, says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. 
Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Death, for us, does not slow our receipt of God's promises. Death, for us, now is our servant. It serves us by speeding us along in our journey. And in this lies a part of the power of the resurrection. Again, Paul made it his life, life's mission after his conversion to know him and the power of his resurrection. And in this point is a part of the power of his resurrection, that by his resurrection, Christ has opened the kingdom of heaven to all who follow him. Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then God has fulfilled his promise. Romans 1 tells us that Jesus was powerfully declared to be the son of God, the messianic king, by his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection proves that the promised savior had come. Which brings us to Paul's next point. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. God's plan of redeeming people, his people, through Jesus did not begin when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The coming of the Christ was what all of history looked forward to. And Paul shows this by reminding Timothy that God had promised a Savior would come in God's covenant with David. He points Timothy back to the covenant with David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, it says, and this is God speaking to David here through his prophet Nathan. It says, David, when your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the resurrection of Jesus was not a resurrection of just anyone. It wasn't random. This was the resurrection of the Messiah, the one that is reiterated throughout the Old Testament. This is the eternal king that was promised to David. And this promise here in 2 Samuel 7 sat dormant for centuries. When king after king was raised up and Israel's waiting on the fulfillment of this promise. And we know that Israel was not casual. They were not passive. They were not sitting back, uh, relaxed, waiting on the promise. Uh, they were not relating on the fulfillment of this promise in a relaxed way. Because once Jesus came and began his ministry, began doing these works to prove who he is, the people of Israel started to ask a question that's recorded for us in the Gospels. They begin to say, can this be the son of David? They were waiting for their Messiah to come the promised son of David. And then we read in Matthew chapter 1, starts out with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Luke 1.31, when an angel is telling uh, Mary about uh, this birth that's about to happen and the nature of her son's life, here's what he says. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, 
David. This Jesus is the promised one from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David. And one of the main things that this teaches us is that God keeps his promises. So Timothy, if God keeps his promises on the grand scale of human history, he can certainly keep his promises to you in your life. So Timothy, remember Jesus' work. He is alive and he is king. God promised a savior would come. And the resurrection shows us that the savior has come. By way of application, as we think about remembering Christ Jesus, I want to encourage us to practice self-awareness in this area. We need to know our own tendency to fix our eyes and our minds on who or what is causing our suffering. Maybe your suffering this morning is an illness that won't go away. Maybe you've dealt with it your whole life. Maybe it's a new illness. Maybe the suffering you're facing this morning is suffering in your marriage. There's difficulty. Maybe it's in your parenting. Challenges raising your children. Maybe your concern, suffering that you feel is over your own singleness. Maybe your suffering this morning is the depression that lingers. Maybe you're spiritually discouraged. You feel that you're cold towards the things of God. And I want to encourage you, like Paul encourages Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Your first step should be to remember Jesus Christ, not fixing attention on the suffering first. Remember Jesus Christ. Maybe your tendency is to be like the Christians in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is a pastor. In Revelation 2, we read words from Jesus to the Ephesian church. Listen to these words. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Those are encouraging words from Jesus. Maybe you're like these Ephesians here. Notice what all they get right. Their doctrine is sound. They defend the faith well. They remain steadfast in the face of evil. They have gotten a lot of things right. But in verse 4, the very next verse, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So for all that they got right, these Christians have forgotten to love the person of Christ. They have forgotten to love Christ. And if that's you, hear Paul plead with you this morning. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David. 
Paul moves on from Christ's work to then talk about Christ's word. He starts reminding Timothy in verse 9 of the cost associated with gospel ministry. Paul says, one, I am suffering. I wonder if you pass over those words a little too quickly. You know, what does it mean here? Paul says, I am suffering. It means he's in pain. This hurts. I'm paying something dearly for ministering the gospel. He says, I am suffering. I'm bound with chains. Can you imagine? Thick metal shackles on your wrists, maybe on your ankles, maybe both. And they don't put small chains to hold big criminals in. They put big chains on them, right? Can you imagine writing a letter with chains? He says, I'm suffering, I'm bound with chains, I'm treated like a criminal. He's in jail with likely murderers, thieves, people who've committed actual crimes against humanity. And he's right there with them, same chains on. And Paul says, but the word of God is not bound. I am bound, Timothy, but the word of God is not bound. So no matter the difficulty that you're facing, Timothy, no matter who opposes you, even if you are bound in chains, the word of God is not in chains and cannot be stopped. Think about the story in Acts 12 when Herod turned violent against the church of Jesus. Acts 12.5, I'm sorry, Acts 12.1 says, About that, at that time, Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod fought against God, believing that he had the upper hand. But do you remember what happened next? In verse 5, it says, Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. And then, on the heels of this earnest prayer, with Peter locked up in prison, God divined a, uh, God uh, orchestrated a, a divine jailbreak, busted Peter out of jail. And then, an angel of the Lord struck down Herod during a public speech. And here's how the Word of God talks about that. It says, Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Herod ravaged Christ's church. He imprisoned the Apostle Peter. He killed James. And the Word of God didn't move an inch off its path to complete Jesus' mission. Jesus' words can be no more bound than Jesus himself. And we just learned that nothing binds Jesus, not even death. He laid down his own life because he had the authority to. And he took it back up again because he had the authority to. Therefore, nothing can bind Jesus' words. This statement that the word of God is not bound is true for us today in many senses. 
The word of God is not bound so that it cannot be preached. It's not bound so that it can't be preached. Paul preached the word of God even while he was bound. He preached it so much that the gospel was made known uh, in, in all of Caesar's household. And we should consider right now, this morning, that more than 20 centuries have passed since Paul was in prison. And here we are with open Bibles in hand and a free pulpit. Why is that? Because the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound so as to no longer be a living and working power among God's people. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. says the word of God is living and active. Jeremiah 23, God speaking here, says, Is not my word like fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously yes. The word of God is not bound so that it is no longer a living, working power among God's people. God's word is still like a fire actively today. God's word is still like a hammer actively today. God's word is not bound. God's word is not bound so that it cannot reach the heart. Now, I wonder how many of you have relatives, close friends, whose salvation is of great concern to you. You've had long and maybe hard conversations, possibly spanning many years, and you've plotted and planned uh, another way to try to bring up the gospel so maybe it sticks this time. Maybe you just haven't said it the right way, you think. So I'm going to sort of figure out a way to say it differently so that it sticks. I've been there. You've prayed long over this friend or this family member, but no matter what you do, their heart still seems hard to it. Maybe they're even more opposed to the gospel than ever. Maybe they don't want to hear from you. And if you think about that long enough, it, it just makes you want to cry because their salvation is of great concern to you. Please hear this morning that there's hope for hardened sinners. God's word is not bound so that it cannot reach the heart. Now, moving on to verse 10, we must remember that verse 9 and verse 10 are linked together. They're linked together here with this word, therefore. And it is the unstoppable, unbound, unchained word of God that emboldens Paul to write verse 10. Paul says, Timothy, Jesus Christ, the promised son of David, he's alive. His word's not bound. It's running free. And therefore... I am willing to endure everything. I'll endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation in Christ Jesus is eternally glorious. And Paul says, I'll endure everything 
send anything my way so that the elect obtain that salvation. So who's he talking about here? Who are these people that Paul is talking about? I think a helpful metaphor is used in John 10. If it'd be helpful for you to flip there, I encourage you to do so. John 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus knows who are his. He calls them sheep. He is the shepherd and those who are his are called the sheep here in John 10. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for those who are mine. And then he goes on to say, and I have other sheep that are, that are not of this, this fold. And listen to this. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So there are, there are other sheep that are not currently in this fold, Jesus says, in this, in this pen. But they are my sheep. That's what he says. And he says, I must bring them also so that there will be one flock. I won't leave anyone behind. I won't leave any sheep behind. There will be one flock and I will be their one shepherd. And then Jesus clears up this metaphor, clues us in to what he's talking about here. He says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They, those sheep who hear his voice and follow him, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus clears this metaphor up for us here. Who are these sheep? Well, they are those to whom Jesus gives eternal life, according to John 10. They obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. The sheep are Christians. Ephesians 1, Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins addressing a letter, uh, a letter to the Ephesians by calling them saints and saying these are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says he's writing to the faithful in Christ. These two are Christians in Ephesians 1.1. And he goes on in verse 4 speaking about those those Christians who he's writing this letter to, he says, he, meaning Christ, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So these Christians in Ephesians 1, these are the faithful in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world. They have obtained the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And Paul had just referred to these people in Romans 8 as saints, just like he did in Ephesians 1, who are the the Christians. So Paul in Romans 8, again, is talking about Christians when he says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. These were people set apart here in Romans 8 to be conformed to the image of Jesus. They are the ones that obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's who is being talked about here in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 and John 10. So then we come back to our question. Who then are the elect in 2 Timothy 8, 10? Well, the elect are Jesus' sheep. Chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined for salvation, in Christ Jesus. The elect are Christians, both Christians who are in the fold, in the the pen, under the rule and reign of the great shepherd, both Christians who are in the fold and the ones who are not yet in the fold, but certainly will be. Because Jesus says in John 10, I must bring them also. This word elect is uh, controversial. And we need to be so careful when we handle these words. We handle these weighty doctrines. These are sensitive topics. But Paul could have said many things here. He could have said, I endure all things for the sake of the church but he didn't say that he could have said i endure uh, uh, all things for uh, uh, uh for, for you timothy no. he doesn't say that he says the elect and again all of this is meant to help timothy embrace and endure suffering not run away from it so paul reminds timothy That God's word is not bound and God has a people. They will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy is only going to embrace suffering in his ministry and not run away from it if he can be confident in the work of Jesus on the earth. He can only stand firm in the face of suffering if his footing is on absolutely certain grounds. So he reminds him that the elect will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And that is not in any way a demotivator. In no way does Timothy start complaining about this. This is a confident certainty driven motivator that when Timothy opens his mouth and preaches though he doesn't know who or when or where God has a people Christ has sheep 
And they will hear his voice. They will come to him. It's a certain motivator. God has people that he has not yet saved through the work of his son. And we will never know when God will use his word that comes out of our mouth to draw sheep, his sheep to his son. But we do know that he will do that. This is meant to be a motivator for Timothy's evangelism. And I want to encourage you to action this morning with that. I want to encourage you to be like the sower in the parable of the soils. Now, the sower, uh, or the parable of the soils, is a, a parable that is about different types of responses to the gospel using the metaphor of the different types of soil, right? You've got the hard soil, there's the, the rocky soil, and then you've got the thorny soil, and then there's, there's good soil. And have you ever thought about the sower in that parable? Hey, here's some, there's some hard soil. There's some gravel. There's some thorns. Has anybody ever gardened that way? Don't raise your hand. You've never gardened that way. Can you imagine this sower going out and just sowing? Hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil. If I can maybe venture why he would do something like that, it's because he believes in the power of the word of God. What we learn about that parable in Luke 8 is that the seed is the word of God. He believes in the power of the, of the uh, word of God. So be like the sower. Because we believe in the power of Christ's words. And we believe that God's word is not bound. And we believe that though we have no idea who they are, that there are people right now who have not yet come to Christ, but they will. Paul encourages Timothy here to not lose heart in evangelism. And the way that he encourages him to not lose heart in evangelism is to remember Jesus Christ, remember that God's word is not bound, and remember that his sheep will hear his voice and will come to him. So my, I've said this ten times now, but my encouragement for the church today Remember Jesus Christ. Don't be like what we see in the Ephesians. We need to be reminded that in our, in our age and, and in our, uh, even in this church, we, are, uh, we, we are, are sound in doctrine. We hate false doctrine in this church. But so did the Ephesians in Revelation too. They lost love for the person of Christ. I want to encourage you, remind you again, don't lose love for the person of Christ. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember that God's word is not bound. And that's meant to help you to share it. It's meant to help you to dwell on it. God's word has not lost power to help in your life. It's live and well. It's living and active. Know God's word. And remember that God uses his people to advance his kingdom for the glory of his son on the earth that he created. He does have sheep. 
They will hear his voice. They will come to him. Don't lose heart in sharing the gospel. Don't let all of life's circumstances slow you down from the power of God's word and sharing the power of God's word. Let's pray. God, there is none like you in heaven and on earth. God, we thank you that you have sent your son to die for our sins. And God, I pray that you would help your word to be effective in our life today, effective in this church, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the offspring of David. God, help us to not lose heart. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might uh, know you. We might know the power of your resurrection. And God, I pray that you would open our mouths for the sake of the gospel, that you would help us be a people who are zealous to make your name known, both in this city, in our state, and even among the nations. Don't let this, this fire die out among us, Lord. Help our zeal to make your name known. Lord, we commit this time to you. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.